for those of you who are joining, um, you still have time to create an account for yourselves. So I see there's five people who have joined as listeners, but they don't have accounts. And so if you create an account for yourself, then you can ask questions in the room chat and you can raise your hand to ask questions of the speakers. Um, and so it's, it's useful to, to, you can still do it right now. The way to get an account is you go to callin.com on your browser, or you go to the call-in social podcasting app on your um, app in your app store. And from there, in a couple of minutes, you can create an account, and then you can revisit the link for this page um, from your account. And then that uh, allows you to uh, ask questions in the room chat, and it allows you to become a caller on the call. Questions in the room chat, and it allows you to become a caller on the call as well, if you do that. So that, that that's usually a preferred way of doing it. So, hi, Vlad. Uh, I'm so glad you joined. Great to see you. Looks like Donna has joined. Uh, thanks for joining us. Looks like Donna is with Telehealth and Telecare Aware. She's the editor of those, so that's great. Thanks for joining us, Donna. <clears throat> and we'll be kicking off in just a moment. And a big, a big welcome to our live audience for Digital Health Investor Talk. I'm your host, Stephen Wardell. I'm the managing partner of Wardell Advisors, a digital health advisory firm, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors is helping digital health companies address issues around growth, fundraising, trade sales, and strategic alternatives. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. Our guest today is Mark Anderson. Mark is a former CIO uh, for five multi-hospital IDNs and is now the CEO of AC Group that, that specializes in evaluation, selection, and ranking of vendors in over 50 categories in the healthcare IT marketplace. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. Today's topic is selling into the provider market. What's going on with healthcare providers? How, uh, how does their IT budget look? And what are their spending preferences? First off, here's the format for this investor talk. We'll talk for about 40 minutes um, uh, about uh, the news in the first 40 minutes. Then in the second 40 minutes, we're gonna talk about the, the hospital IT budget and the changing preferences for that. At, cer at certain points, we'll be calling for questions from the audience uh, 
to ask questions, you need to register with callin.com. And so we encourage people who are on this call, uh, who are just visiting the page to register, get an account, log into your account, uh, and then uh, be in the active listener audience so that you're able to ask questions in the room chat and as a caller. Um, and there's still time to do that now. Um, so, uh, uh, so Mark, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So why don't you introduce ourselves a little more to your audience? Well, I'm glad everybody was able to join today. So I've been in the, the CEO of AC Group for about 23 years now, but I've been the healthcare executive for over 50 years. And during that past 50 plus years, I've worked for and or consulted with over 300 hospitals and with over 500 physician practices that totaled over 26,000 physicians all over the United States. In my consulting advisory role, I really worked on daily operations, long-range planning, facility planning, you know, the workflow redesign, but more importantly, technical design, implementation of software products, and really executive leadership over all financial and operational departments. So I've looked at a lot of different software products over my time. I've led over 500 healthcare IT projects selections, and have participated and purchased over $9.2 billion in technology services over my career. Along with serving as the Vice President of Management Services and the CIO for five hospital chains, as Steve mentioned, I've also served as a CEO, COO, and CFO in some smaller rural hospitals since 2010. And I've worked with a lot of the ACOs out there on moving from fixed-based uh, reimbursement to value-based reimbursement. But I'm also heavily involved in the HIMSS Association, Anybody that's involved in trying to sell technology in healthcare needs to join the Healthcare Information Management Society based out of Chicago. We have big annual meetings or regional meetings. Very important for people to understand these are the buyers. These are the people that actually look at all the products, the technical people in the hospital setting. So that's kind of my overview of what I've been doing. But I've also worked with a lot of investors and a lot of the new startup companies, helping them better understand what it takes to thrive in this market, what it takes to sell. And really, how do you create a differential sale over all your competitors? Too many times I see the same vendors saying the same things. You got to be different. How do you make sure you, you look different from the other people and have a really good quantified return on investment? If you can't quantify it, we don't believe it anymore. That's great. That's kind of my overview. Um, so now we'll slide into the news section of the show. And I'll start off with the macro outlook. So um, unfortunately, digital health entrepreneurs who didn't have to think about macro outlook that much for over a decade now have to think about it a lot. Uh, so we're in an environment of growing macro uncertainty and uh, investors uh, are saying that one of the reasons that lead investors aren't leading as much today as they were before is because of uncertainty, uncertainty about the macro environment, uncertainty about, about valuation levels, uncertainty about the Fed raising interest rates. Uh, so, uh, that's why we cover the macro outlook uh, from the perspective of the innovation economy. The innovation economy is CEOs of young software companies and investors. Um, so today we we had some news. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics issued a CPI print, and they said inflation was up three percent from a year ago, and that's the lowest inflation in two years. So this was this was instantly seen as good news by the market. And the NASDAQ was up 1% on the news. And this is very good news for the innovation economy. We, we don't like rising interest rates. We don't like inflation. We want 
the, the near crisis of 6% inflation to fade away. So fading away from annualized rate of 6% to annualized rate of 3% is pretty good. Low inflation, by the way, is 2%. So 3%, not, not that much higher and going in the right direction. Um, so um, any thoughts on, and so, so this is, we're not out of the woods yet, but this is good news uh, prospectively for the, you know, uh, uh, and it, it also signifies that the Fed is raising rates to tame inflation and has raised rates faster over the last two years than at any other period ever. Um, and so this suggests that the Fed may not be so inclined to raise rates. They know the, the pain and the cost of raising rates. Uh, and the Fed at its last FOMC meeting um, didn't raise rates. That was the first time in two years that they didn't raise rates. But they said, we may raise rates twice before the end of the year. And so this suggests that you know we may see two weak rate rises or perhaps less than that. So weak rate rises would be a quarter basis point uh, uh, twice at, at FOMC meetings over the next six months. Could be less than that. Um, Mark, any thoughts on uh, inflation? Maybe I talk about inflation from the perspective of the entrepreneur and the investor. Maybe inflation from the perspective of the hospital. Hospitals are viewed as being in pain from a budget perspective. Maybe inflation makes it worse uh, for hospitals. And any thoughts about what uh, good news on the inflation front means? Well, we haven't quite seen it in the hospital and the physician side yet. We're still seeing labor costs about 9% higher than last year. It's still hard to find people. People don't want to come back and work in a hospital setting with sick people, I guess. But that's still a problem. But our supply costs overall are still up about 9% too. So we're not seeing the so-called reduction in inflation yet. Hopefully it'll be coming. May just be a little bit later down the road for us. But again, hospitals are struggling because they lost so much money during COVID because we had to close down so many of our facilities. And we haven't really recovered from that yet. So any cost increase really makes it tough. We have a major labor shortage in healthcare, especially around the administrative people, the clerical people, people do billing, people do check-in, um, MAs. You know, nurses, not as bad. Doctors, we have enough doctors out there to get us by, but we need more. But again, inflation is still really hurting the hospital settings today. Okay, very interesting to hear. Um, so next I'm gonna look at the IPO window. So, um, uh, the fact the IPO window is is broadly considered to be closed. It's closed for digital health. It's closed for biotech. It's closed for much of the economy. That's bad news. That means that we're seeing when it comes to Series CD crossover and IPO, we're seeing that sector down ninety to a hundred percent, and that causes a lack of confidence in investors because, for example, an investor won't do a Series C because they can't see an I to a possible IPO down the road. Um, so looking at that, we have some relatively good news on that front. Uh, and here I have a view to the future that's more optimistic than average. I would say that the median view is that the IPO window will open up four quarters or more from now, um, which is you know, so a year out. I'm calling that the IPO window is going to be open for digital health in six months or less. Um, and so my view is a little more optimistic. So what I'm tracking on this is a couple things. First, uh, we had Kenview a couple months ago, the consumer arm of Johnson & Johnson, IPO'd May 4th at $22 a share uh, and is up since then. And so that's really good news. So when the IPO window is closed, only blue chip companies can actually make it out and IPO anyway. The fact that Kenview IPO'd and is in healthcare, that was watched by boards of all sorts of, of 
the digital health and healthcare companies looking at that and wondering if they could IPO as well, because there's a lot of pent up demand on the part of um, investors who are in unicorn companies to IPO in tech, digital health and biotech. And there's actually a lot of demand for IPO product from the buy side investors, the Fidelity's Blackrocks of the world. There's just not a lot of confidence that you can do successful IPOs in today's environment uh, and valuations are down as well. So um, this is the successful IPO of Kenview was a wonderful shot in the arm for the sector. And then next is we had, uh, uh, I think people are uh, to a certain extent, uh, you know, uh, impressed with with uh, Kava, the Mediterranean restaurant chain um, that was oversubscribed by 170%. The stock, the stock was up uh, a great deal. So there's that's not in healthcare, um, but nevertheless, uh, people saw that and they said, you know, we're seeing some successful IPOs here. What you really need to see happen is some leading companies go out, IPO big companies, and then the stock go up and be viewed and trade nicely and be viewed as a success. And that opens the window for others. So positive signs. The latest news is that the biotech IPO window is also closed, uh, but we have a Boston area company called Apogee Therapeutics has announced that it will price and float uh, soon. So it could be this week, for example. Um, and uh, so th there's a biotech company um, going against the grain. We will see how it performs, um, but that's going to be watched even more closely than Kenview. Um, and then lastly, we have some announcements that I've been tracking where Instacart, a big tech company, has said it will IPO. No further news on that, but we're going to watch it and see if it IPOs. And then ARM, the UK chip manufacturer, has said it will IPO. We want to watch that and see that be successful as well. Tech companies, and digital health often tracks tech, um, are watching ARM. And ARM is being seen as an AI play because they make the kinds of chips that can run uh, AI. And so they're, they're seeking to to IPO into that enthusiasm. So we're watching these and my thesis is that uh, with inflation a little better than expected, um, with the Fed a little less likely to raise rates and with the IPO window possibly opening after some positive IPOs that we've seen, um, these factors are gonna, are gonna improve the investor environment for digital health. Um, so um, uh, Mark, any, any thoughts on, uh, on the changing macro outlook? Well, I think the challenge on all of this is, you know, an IPO sounds great if you have a good healthcare technology. And the problem is we have spent so many billions of dollars on technology that we haven't really seen the ROI or the real benefits from it. So the challenge is today, how do you get your company to be able to improve quality, reduce cost, and how do you do it without a large financial backer? I mean, typically these projects take 18 months from initially looking at a product to actually buying a product. It takes a long time. You got to have a lot of good financial backing to get you through this. And I think if some larger companies come and back up some of these things, you know, there, there's a potential value out there. But again, most of the vendors I talk to, especially the startup ones, really can't position their product. You know, they talk about how great their technology is, how great their people are. We don't really care about that if you can't show a business benefit. So again, it's great to have all these ideas out there. But I tell you, these startup companies got great ideas. They don't know how to sell into healthcare. It's a whole different matter. Remember, we don't get paid for quality. We get paid for how many people we see and how sick they are. So we're looking for a different kind of approach towards this. And if you really can't quantify the real benefits and, can, and have a differential sale compared to somebody else out there, 
We may not even consider your product, but there's some really good products out there. There's some really good opportunities to reduce costs and improve quality. But I tell you, the vendors got to really, you know, get to the bat and, you know, really know what they're doing. And it doesn't appear a lot of them really understand the healthcare buying marketplace. So a little more on macro, um, uh, multiple economic sources are predicting a recession. Um, uh, Fidelity is predicting a recession. Larry Summers, who I like to follow, is predicting a recession. Both are predicting shallow recessions. Um, uh, and uh, a recession is actually something that is a true painful solution to inflation. When you have, It's very hard to have both a recession and inflation at the same time. A recession means people don't have cash and not spending it on things and, that, and they're not driving prices up. Um, and so um, a recession and also we're at the end of an expansion cycle. And so we're in we're in we're due for a contraction cycle, which is a recession. Uh, so that's interesting to watch. I don't think that we're in a recession yet, uh, but uh, Fidelity and Larry Summers are predicting uh, a shallow recession. And for entrepreneurs, um, a recession is bad news. And the reason it's bad news is that their buyers become the, the, the buyers of technology products become more conservative. So the hospital buyer, the mm-hmm. payer buyer, the consumer buyer, the employer buyer, the pharma tech buyer, uh, they become more, they feel poor themselves during a recession. Their future is less certain. They, they, they're less willing to make capital uh, expense uh, commitments about the future. Um, so that's bad news. There's a joke that, com- that young companies that make it through recessions are bound for glory um, the trouble is, is that you don't know if you're going to be one of those young companies who makes it through the recession. It, it's it's small comfort to hear that. Um, uh, so, uh, so Mark, any thoughts about you know going into a recession? Do 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 CIOs think we're going into a recession, and what does it mean for hospital IT budgets? Well, you know, they're a little bit worried about it, but not totally. One thing is, no matter what, we have health care. People are still getting sick, no matter what. Uh, it's one of those industries that no matter what happens, people still are going to get sick. They have to come in uh, to be taken care of. So the problem has been, in a recession, how do we keep paying everybody? How do we keep getting our supplies? Patients will come in, like during COVID. You know, we had about a 48% reduction in patients coming through the doors because of COVID. That was our recession. Now, again, we have a real t- a financial recession. It's probably going to affect us, but we're not worried about it yet. But it could affect us later on. You got to remember, most hospitals are lucky to make 1% profit. Yeah, the for-profit organizations probably make more. But the average hospital is not making a lot of money to invest in a lot of new technologies. But, again, if you can find a way of reducing costs and improving overall quality, there's some benefits out there. But I don't think the recession is really, if we do go into recession, I don't think it's really going to affect healthcare that much, at least on the provider side. That's great. And for our audience, um, if you're registered, uh, you can ask questions in the chat room. Feel free to type in the chat room, ask us questions. If there's a news story, macro environment question, industry report question, feel free to ask it in the chat room and we will and we'll react to it. Um, so next is industry reports in the last couple of weeks. So. Um, in in my work, uh, people look for and are glad to see the latest version of the standard rock health industry report on funding. Uh, and so it, it just came out two days ago. So uh, in it, they talked about a new reality, a new environment. Uh, none of it good, but it's just it's a reflection of what we've been seeing for six or more quarters. Um, so they talked about fewer fundraising deals lower check sizes, 
and a smaller cohort of digital health investors who are active. Um, so specifically in Q2, which we just exited Q2, they tracked only 2.5 billion in funding across 113 deals. That's significantly down. Um, so it's a sub $3 billion quarter. I think last quarter was over 3 billion. So it's even below last quarter. Um, and they say, if funding continues this way for the next two quarters, we will have the lowest funding year since 2019. Um, they also noticed a trend, which is that specialist investors, that is investors who focus entirely on digital health and don't really have other areas they invest in, are still active. But other kinds of investors, generalist investors from generalist funds or crossover investors, maybe a consumer investor who's getting involved in something that has a consumer angle in healthcare, they seem to be less active. They seem to be exiting uh, the sector. Um, another interesting phenomenon they point to is the phenomenon that they call the unlabeled raise. And so the unlabeled raise is when a, a young venture-backed company raises around, and sometimes they, they're very quiet about the raise, but usually they have a press release. But then in that press release, um, they may not disclose the, the, the round series. They may not say this is a series C round. They may say we raised $40 million, but they won't, but they're not saying, well, what round was it, for example? Um, so they said that 41% of rounds were unlabeled by the companies. So by the way, in general, there's databases you can check, you can find out what the round was um, if you know how to look past the press release. Um, so uh, why do, why do they, are they not labeling? And by the way, internally, they, they did label the round internally. They just, they just didn't put the round in the press release. <laughs> um, the investors know which round it is. Um, so the reason is, is that they don't want to look weak. Um, and so if, if a typical Series C round is $50 million and they wanted to raise 50 million and they raised 40 million, um, then that looks weak. So their solution is to not include that it was a Series C round in the press release. Um, so that's an interesting phenomenon. None of this great. So that, that's Rock Health. They do a good job tracking. Uh, funding and release quarterly reports. And I, I recommend people to go to the report, read the whole thing. It's worthwhile. It'll tell you who the active investors are and what the big deals were of the quarter and that sort of thing. Um, so those are some of the trends. Um, uh, Mark, uh, did you have any thoughts on that? Or did you see in the last couple of weeks any reports that came out that made a big splash in your world? I wouldn't say anything really big. Uh, I, I really follow the call the Becker's reports. Mm -hmm. They have a Becker's report for payers, for providers, for hospitals, finance. They have all these different reports that come out, which really tells you what's been going on that last week or two weeks. But I also like the class reports, K-L-A-S. Mm -hmm. uh, they go in in-depth review of all the different types of categories. The challenge in healthcare, we have about 90 different categories of technology. We don't go out and buy one system. We have to buy 90 different systems. So they're very good at drilling down into, you know, telehealth, remote patient monitoring, outsource coding, you know, what's going on in, uh, you know, in digital imaging. So I like those reports, you know, but they're basically every six months. They really tell you who's winning, who's losing, what they're really looking at. But the Becker's reports seem to really give you what's happening last week. And one of the things I've been watching also is a lot of, uh, there's a major increase in malpractice cases over the last few years because of a few reasons that are out there. 
But I think that's going to be a one to watch out for because if technologies are potentially increasing malpractice because of certain issues, we need to watch out for that because that's going to become a big issue in the future. So I, I heard predictions going back five plus years ago that uh, that a move to telehealth would trigger um, malpractice suits. So in other words, there's the, if you have a telehealth visit, then they're not taking your weight. They're not taking your blood pressure. Correct. Um, and that this was going to open up. And so providers, you know, in the old days, providers didn't want to do telehealth for a variety of reasons. Increasingly, providers do want to do telehealth, including that it could save them, it could be more convenient, and they want to charge equivalency for telehealth, but then they may not collect the information they need uh, that they would get in an office visit. So is that, is that, is that, is some of this um, malpractice lawsuit, is this coming from missing data because you did a telehealth visit? And is that bad for telehealth adoption? Well, I've seen, you know, I, I do a lot of um, expert witness cases on uh, malpractice and other kind of things. I've done about 90, 90 different projects so far, or cases. And we've seen a two or 300% increase, not in malpractice cases, and they're referencing back lack of information, lack of documented information. So it, they're not suing because of the telehealth. They're suing because something went wrong and there's no record in the medical records that the, that the doctor did certain things. If you know, a patient comes in and says on, on a television, my stomach hurts. Okay. What is that? It could be cancer or it could be, you know, take a, you know, a Tums and you're fine. Uh, that physical exam is so important and we're not doing the physical exam in a telehealth visit. I have seen more Rayleigh, a kind of remote patient monitoring and telehealth where a nurse or an MA may be out at the location, say a nursing home, and they're able to do a combination of a nurse visit and the telehealth with a doctor, we get more information. But again, if you're just doing a telehealth visit, especially what we did during COVID, uh, we're not collecting anything on the physical exam. You can still ask patients, but if you can't listen to the heart, you don't know how it's doing. If you can't look into their ears and their eyes, you can't really tell what's going on. We need more mobile devices where I can actually see and listen to the heart while the patient's you know, 100 miles away or 30 miles away. So there's been a big decrease. We've seen a 90% decrease in televisits in the last year. Now, I don't know, it's just because of the pricing. Uh, reimbursement's really dropping down tremendously. We're seeing doctors you know, get rid of – they don't get rid of telehealth, but they find it's more valuable to actually see the patient. So it's one of those where I believe in telehealth – but we really got to make sure it works for the patient and for the healthcare system and not creating more potential issues in the future. That's interesting. So you could have kind of a perfect storm. So two years ago, you know, one of the biggest themes in um, healthcare IT was telehealth enablement. Uh, you know, hospitals were um, sources of, of contagion and spread. And so we had to enable providers to be able to engage with patients and other providers in a telehealth way and hospitals spent on that. Um, and now you may see that a telehealth visit is gets uh, you know, sub-equivalent reimbursement, which is really bad news. Um, and then yes. you also may see an increased liability risk. So that, that, that is like a, a one-two punch for telehealth in a, in a, in a, provi in a you know, provider organization context. What? But on a good side, as we move to value-based reimbursement, where we get reimbursed based on overall quality and outcomes, I think there's going to be increase in telehealth, remote patient monitoring. So combine those two together. 
Telehealth by itself, I think, has a challenge. But if you tie remote patient monitoring in there where I can actually look at their EKG, I can listen to their heart, I can see what their blood sugar is remotely and with the telehealth, I think that is going to be the future. It's just not quite there yet because we don't get paid based on quality. And remote patient monitoring is starting to reimburse, but it's still very low. That's great. So now we're moving on from reports now to trade journal news. So, uh, and these are some select stories that I thought were of, of interest and worth sharing with the audience. So the first story is that uh, Lynn Chu O'Keefe, so she was a former Kleiner Perkins partner and an early investor in digital health, so very well known. And then she start, she spun out herself and raised her own fund, Define Ventures. Um, and they just announced that they have raised their third fund. And interest, very interestingly, um, it is a $460 million fund, so, and it's focused on early stage digital health. So that's huge. That's, that's a big fund. It's a relatively big fund. Um, and it's focused on early stage. It's unusual for a fund that's that big to focus on early stage. Um, I think it's the biggest, probably, that's focused on early stage right now. So great news for early stage. Early stage tends to mean pre-seed, seed, series A. Um, and, uh, and she says she will be doing these early stage investments, seed investments, that sort of thing. Um, so define ventures. And she's raising $460 million from LPs at the worst time anybody remembers to raise from US LPs. So I don't know who she raised this from. Uh, there's a, there were some half scandalous stories about the biggest tech funds in Silicon Valley rushing off to the Persian Gulf and Saudi Arabia to raise money from the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund and from wealthy, um, you know, from wealthy individuals in the Gulf as LPs because US LP sources uh, were weak. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, so, um, so that, that, so we don't know, I don't know who her LPs are and oftentimes LPs are not disclosed. Um, so, but that's just, that's great news for early stage to get a giant new fund following on from her prior two successful funds. Um, so any, any thoughts on that story, um, uh, Mark? No, I think it's, it's a good story. I see, you know, things are occurring out there. I think it's a, it's a, we need more venture people willing to put money into some of these products uh, because there's some great products out there, but I think they still need the help on how to position themselves effectively. And if you get people to really understand the healthcare market, especially the ones that invest in healthcare, you really got to get out there and really help these companies get off the ground because everybody wins if we get a really good product out there. But if they can't you know, really define their product as far as a benefit, uh, and if you can't integrate with the Epics and the Cerners and the Meditechs, it's very hard to get a healthcare organization to adopt it. So anytime you can get people that are willing to create, you know, funds, it's it's fantastic. But we need to make sure we're creating the funds that are going to provide technology that we're really going to need in the future. Not because it looks good, not because, it, you know, somebody said it was good. Things that we can actually implement, and it's going to create benefits. And, uh, our guest Dana has has provided a link to a CMS report on telehealth. So uh, thank you, Dana, for for providing that. Um, and uh, so the next story, you know, um, I, I, so uh, I used to be talking all the time about the many fundraisers, the many great fundraisers with digital health mainstream investors as lead investors, and during this these the current lean environment, we're not seeing as many of those. So I was glad to see that 
uh, the digital health company Verifiable, which is an automated um, uh, credentialing and compliance software vendor for healthcare provider organizations. They announced uh, this past week, they successfully raised a $27 million Series B funding round, bringing their total funding to 47 million. I think part of what this does is it automates the process of verifying the credentials of uh, providers. All providers have complex credentials. They all need to be verified every time they're hired at a hospital. It's a surprisingly laborious and difficult process to do that. Um, and so uh, that, 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 that's a place where software could play a great role. Um, behind this round, there's Craft Ventures. That's, the, that's David Sachs's venture fund that invests in B2B SaaS and Highland Capital Partners. Um, so that's interesting. Those are not classic digital health venture funds. So here we have, we don't have a lot of great deals to announce this week. And the one we have is an outsider uh, in, in here. So once again, we're not seeing a lot of classical of you know, US venture backed companies raising a seed A or B from digital health lead investors. We're seeing an outside B2B SaaS fund investing in a digital health company instead. Um, so a little disappointed not to see more and, and to see this deal instead, which has out, outside investors in it. Uh, and this gets to the issue that in digital health, lead investors aren't leading, which is why we need the Fed to stop raising rates so that we can reduce uncertainty so that digital health VCs can lead again. So any, any thoughts? Maybe you'd heard of Verifiable uh, before. I was not very familiar with them before seeing this announcement, but they sell the hospitals. Yeah, yeah there's a... There, there's about 10 companies that I know that do that already. Uh, you're, you're right. It's very time consuming, even with this new technology. But again, if you're going to thrive in this market, you really got to be able to show what the benefits are and what makes your product better than the other 10 that are already out there. Almost every hospital system already has some kind of automation. But again, you know, a lot of it ties, ties in with the other technology we have. To be able to certify a doctor, I got to be able to get information from how many cases they did. You got to have interfaces with the Epics, the Cerners, the Meditechs, because that, they're going to track how many cases they've done. So again, a lot of these people try to create this technology because it sounds perfect. There's a gap there. We need benefits, but they don't really think it all the way through from the hospital point of view. What does the hospital need? What how, what were they going to buy? So hopefully they'll do a better job than the, the ten systems are already out there. But they already got a lot of competition, so they got to really prove that their product is going to be better. It's going to save a lot of time. Because it does take a lot of time to credential these doctors every single time something goes on. So then also uh, some bad news. So, I mean, for the last six quarters, we've had more, more bad news than good news. Um, so Headspace Health, a, a mental health, digital health company, they confirmed this past week a second round of layoffs in less than a year, laying off 15% of their workforce. Um, so... A couple of things going on here. I think Headspace was a bright light for a while. And one of the reasons they were a bright light, they were very good at raising money and they were also an acquirer. So early on, they became an acquirer. They acquired Ginger, Shine and Sayana. Um, and we're looking for that. We're looking for our own uh, young digital health companies to grow fast, mature, become acquirers, uh, acquire other companies, build out you know, great platforms. And so here's Headspace doing that. And now they've, they've stumbled, they've laid off some employees. Uh, and this is also reflecting something, which is that all, all VCs are or should, or should be telling their portfolio companies to belt tighten. Belt tightening is the best thing that you can do right now. You can raise money as well, um, 
uh, in, a, in a more challenging environment, but it's better to belt tighten and extend your runway, uh, then you have everything under your own control. Whereas if you have to raise money, you're, you're going to give up control to the people who are coming on board with the money. Um, so I, th and I think that um, we still have more need to belt tighten ahead of us than behind us. And I, st I think we have more, um, you know, announcements of layoffs and wind downs ahead of us than behind us, unfortunately. Um, and so, and Headspace is this week's story, uh, uh, in, you know, uh, on that, you know, negative trend. Uh, so any thoughts on, on that, Mark? Well, anybody that's in the behavioral health market, you know, those kind of areas, we have a great need for new technologies there. We know that 28% of all healthcare costs is affected by mental or behavioral health issues. The problem is the reimbursement for a lot of that stuff is just not there. So it's, it's hard for a mental health standalone, you know, they have to pay for that out of their own income. There is no, you know, government subsidies for that. There's no, you know, revenue from having better technologies. And most of the hospital settings that do behavioral health, they're going to use their hospital system, the EPICs, the centers, the Meditech to collect the data. So I agree there's a big need for it. But again, 80% of the behavioral health market is still inside the hospital setting or related to the hospitals. You got to come up with a product that's going to be working closely with the EPICs and Cerners if you're going to, you're, otherwise you're losing 80% of the market. 20% of the market still needs it. But again, there's no real reimbursement for it. So I said that's extra cost with no real financial benefit, although there is good clinical benefits. That's great. And then from our audience, and Mark, you may be able to see the, the chat uh, where you are, but the latest question there from Craig is, uh, how do you feel about the length of stay or patient throughput as an ROI associated with an app that supports better care team collaboration and more efficient discharge? So... You know, uh, new new software yep. companies, apps, uh, they can support better collaboration and discharge. You got to measure that somehow. Are those good measures well, of ROI, le uh, length of stay, and patient throughput? Yeah. So in most cases, we get paid based on a DRG for Medicare, a per diem rate for you know Medicaid, and then the insurance companies pay a you know, kind of combination of all those things. Right now, we're running about a three point eight day length of stay. So it's not very long. Now, the big thing we can work on with these AI tools is how can I eliminate complications after surgery? That's the big one. Because if I can eliminate the complications, that'll, that's one simple thing that'll actually cut down the length of stay. And we found out that every complication that occurs creates an additional $12,000 additional cost for the hospital. And they don't get paid more money for that. They get paid the same amount of money with a complication, without a complication. And we've seen that, you know, the number of complications, it's about 18% of all, excuse me, 18% of all surgeries have complications. So just trying to reduce length of stay is not something that's really going to work. But if you find a way of reducing complications, we reduce this cost. And through that, you reduce length of stay. Yeah, there's some great benefits for it. So there's a lot of things we need, but just going after length of stay at 3.8, you're not going to get that much lower than that anyway, unless you eliminate complications. So rounding off the news and, and, and trade journal uh, stories, Mark, any stories from the trades in the world of hospitals that you want to bring to our audience or any other comments on, on trade journal news of the last week or two? Well, you know, I've been reading a lot, number of stories about, you know, um, you know, 
software vendors grabbing data out of the different software products and selling the data to other third-party companies like pharmaceutical companies or other people, that's causing, that's causing a lot of doubt out there with the HIPAA regulations. So watch out for, you know, a software product that gathers data out of a computer system and then sells it, you know, to make money off of that information. Under the HIPAA regulations, patient data is secure. You cannot, you know, give that data away to somebody else. And I think the big challenge is going to be on the hospitals not protecting their data. They're allowing companies to actually go in and using cookies to grab the data. That's not the company's fault. That's the software vendor that runs the hospital system and the hospital themselves. They need to really protect their data. HIPAA is a very big concern across the nation. The DOJ is looking at those kind of issues. So we got to make sure we're protecting patient data. And that's been the big story lately is how much of this data is being out there that the patient has not said, yeah, that's okay. I want my data out there for somebody to use or sell. We got to protect that patient data more. I've been reading a lot more articles about that lately. Well, that, that reminds me of, a, of a, uh, an in, inside industry joke, which goes, uh, which goes that uh, you know, there, there's two phases to the modernization of Americans' health records. Uh, and in the first phase, they take all of your personal, private, confidential health information and digitize it and move it into the cloud. And in the second phase, you get a free backup in China. Um, so, yes. <laughs> um, so uh, the next, I'm going to move on now to conferences, upcoming conferences. So for our audience, by the way, if you're thinking of going to a conference, you know, throw that conference name in the chat and we will react to it and tell you what we think about it. Um, uh, and so, first of all, I think that in terms of major conferences, the major conferences are over for the summer. Um, uh, I think we had Health 2.0, the, the, re, the revived Health 2.0 ha happened in Las Vegas just a couple days ago. Um, and uh, I actually, um, you know, uh, I, 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 I was uh, a little skeptical of that particular conference uh, to my audience beforehand. So that that's over now. Um, and so now we're, we're probably thinking about conferences in the fall. Um, and so I guess the, the first question I want to ask you about this, Mark, is that Hims is a very well-established conference that's very centric around the hospital CIO and their budget. Over time, it's grown beyond that, and the Hims organization is trying to take it past just hospital CIOs. It's also hospital CFOs. It's also a little bit about medical practice software, that sort of thing, as well, and innovation in general uh, in healthcare. Um, and then along has come um, the, uh, the HLTH organization and Jonathan Weiner, who's the sort of genius conference producer there, and he's produced Health HLTH, which many people like and are fans of, and also Vive. And Vive seems to be attempting to compete directly with HIMSS. So HLTH is, is the JP Morgan killer. It's an investor conference. And Vive is the HIMSS killer. It's a hospital conference. Um, and so what do you, and people, our audience will have a chance to attend either or both of these coming up uh, in, in the coming year. Um, have you been to both? And what do you think of both? And should our audience, they're both more for, um, if, you're, if you're in the innovation economy and you're at a software company, um, and you're, then if you're selling into the hospital or medical practice tech budget, these are conferences that are meant for you. Uh, but if you're selling into the pharma tech budget or the employer budget or the payer budget, these are not, these are, this, is, this is not meant for you. Um, and so, That's uh, but what do you think of these? This is sort of like a cage match, you know, two conferences enter, one conference leaves. 
Um, you know, what, uh, uh, what do you think of these two? Have you been to both? Uh, should our, should our, um, uh, our, our audience uh, buy the ticket? Should they, should they get a booth? Should they expo on the expo floor? What do you think? So basically Vive is relatively new. It's only been what, three or four years now. Mm -hmm. Basically HIMS used to have the HIMS conference and the Chime conference, which was the CIO conference together. The CIOs kind of broke away from HIMS and they kind of joined up with Vive. So Vive is a conference where the CI, the real CIOs go. Mm -hmm. But I find that you're going to get maybe three or 400, maybe a thousand people there. HIMS, you're going to get 40 or 50,000 people there. They average about 65,000 going, although Probably 40% are vendors. But so HIMS is the really good. If you're a startup company, go there. There's all these vendors there. It's a lot of B2B type business going on. But a lot of providers are there. Doctors, not many doctors. Now, if the, if the doctors are employed by the hospital, there's going to be somebody representing the doctors there. But if you're selling to doctors, don't go to either one of those conferences. Unless you're trying to sell to large hospital chains that own 5,000, 10,000 doctors. So they're the technology companies that are out there. I think those are, they're very good to go to. Uh, as far as exhibiting, since I'm a life fellow with HIMS, I should always say, you're, yes, definitely go exhibit at HIMS. But then again, you know, you're, you're competing against booths that are 50 by 200. A 10 by 10 or 10 by 20 booth gets stuck way in the back. So it's hard to get visibility that way. At Vive, it's a little bit easier, but you're, you know, you've got a lot less people going to it. A lot of the decision makers are at, Five. A lot of the overall end users and the people really, you know, bring look at research systems are at the HIMSS conference. But I've been at the last 39 HIMSS conferences, and I've seen it grown from about 2,000 people to over 70,000 people attending. It's the Disney World of uh, healthcare IT, and that's partly why they have it in Orlando so many times or Las Vegas. It kind of fits. Now, last year was this year was in, in Chicago, a little different, uh, not quite as a uh, it snowed a little bit during that time, but they're going back to Las Vegas and Orlando in the future. But you know, good conferences to go to, but you really got to position yourselves. If you're there with 800 other vendors, why does anybody want to stop by your booth? I've done a lot of vendor evaluations. I actually do a ranking of vendor booths on how good they position themselves. How do they get people to stop by the booths? And I'm amazed at how many vendors sit there and do absolutely nothing. They don't know what it takes to get people to stop by their booth, especially when everybody's using the same buzzwords. I only have so many hours to spend. There's 800 vendors. Why do I want to stop at your booth? I can show vendors how to do that, but they don't know how to do it today. I, I, I predict that nearly all the vendors at HIMS this year will be um, buzzword compliant and, and will include generative AI um, in their booth. Oh, yeah, yeah. AI and, you know. Every year, there's a certain buzzword that comes out, and they all have it on their booth. And I ask, well, how are you doing it? And they're like, we don't know yet. It's just a buzzword. You know, quit doing the buzzwords. Show me and really tell a story. Don't tell me about your technology. Don't tell me about this. Tell me a story. How have you benefited another healthcare organization that's my size? You know, if I'm a 100-bed uh, rural hospital, have a story for them. If I am, you know, a large for-profit hospital chain with 50 hospitals, have a story for them. You can't just have one story. And I don't care about your technology unless I believe there's a financial or quality benefit to my organization. Great. So then September conferences. And um, uh, so um, let's see. The uh, I mean, you, you do have MGMA coming up. That's for the physician practice. Mm -hmm. That's usually in October. So there are different conferences. There's conferences going on all the time. 
there's conferences on you know um, revenue cycle management. The HBMA conference they have multiple conferences going on around revenue cycle services. There's some good conferences out there. I speak at a lot of these, but again, if you're a vendor, if you're an investor, really go there with a vision of what I need to find that's going to benefit the healthcare organizations. Because if you can't do that, there's no reason to invest or even build it on a product. There's enough products out there today. That's great. So I'll also mention that um, there's an AARP Age Tech conference coming up in September in DC. I'm very interested in that sector. You know, I'll probably be going to that. Um, uh, and then um, uh, I've seen an interesting discussion. So in, in the world of health innovation, a lot of people really like the health conference, HLTH. Um, and so people are actually looking ahead to it. It is tickets are $4,100. If you buy now, you get an early bird discount um, to $2,700. Uh, it's in Las Vegas, October 8th to 11th. And it's positioned to be, this looks like, you know, a month and a half before JP Morgan in San Francisco. Um, and uh, it is a young company investor conference. There's very heavy participation from digital health VCs. I think Oak is an investor in the conference. Oak is always there in strength. Most main of the major digital health venture funds are there in strength. Everyone's there to do meetings. You can get meetings there. It's a great time to touch base with investors. They're also trying to bring in um, uh, consolidator vendors and and software purchasers. So a consolidator vendor would be like a Cerner and a, and a purchasers like a hospital or like a health plan. They've been less, less successful at doing that. So this is more of an investor conference, meet with investors. People really like this conference, consider it to be efficient, good use. It's also a luxury deluxe conference. And, and so people have fun going and, and enjoying it. And so I've actually heard people talking about buying their tickets early. Uh, now, in fact, instead of waiting to the last minute to decide. So that, that that's interesting that there's enough of a following for this. And then the part two of that question is, if you buy and go, then do you bother to go to JP Morgan? So the JP Morgan conference is a hard conference to understand, but it's basically the JP Morgan Investment Bank has taken over the Western St. Francis Hotel in Union Square, San Francisco. And what happens in there is largely public company presentations of CEOs to public investors, especially biotech. That is the core of JP Morgan. And then around it in other hotels are many other investment banks and many other companies who assume that if they go there, most of the investors they want to talk to will be there. But digital health is a small sideshow at JP Morgan, but there's enough investors there that digital young digital health companies will go and count on meeting with San Francisco VCs or national VCs who will be there for other purposes anyway. But if you've got a great, uh, if you're a young company, you raise money from VCs and there's a VC conference in October in Las Vegas and you go and it has all the digital health VCs there, there doesn't seem to be as big a reason to go to the JP Morgan conference. Um, so uh, so some, I've been hearing some people saying that they're buying their health tickets early and not going to JP Morgan. Crazily, in the last couple of years, we've had the issue of, um, uh, you know, of, uh, uh, of, you know, uh, that downtown San Francisco has been shut down and looks like a war zone and has not recovered from COVID. Um, and so you're walking around in Union Square and all the jewelry stores are shut down and all the nice clothing stores are shut down and have plywood. Uh, and there's armed security patrols going around. Uh, and then some people feel threatened and intimidated by 
um, by walking into groups of homeless people by accident or that sort of thing. So uh, some, and then it also rains in January in San Francisco. And so people are rushing around to meetings in the rain between hotels in San Francisco. So some people are glad, and then the hotel prices are astronomical in San Francisco. So I think I'm probably gonna go to both. Uh, Mark, do you, do you have any thoughts about, uh, about what people are doing about um, their plans for health and JP Morgan? I think you're 100% right. The problem with J.P. Morgan is they're having it in San Francisco. Everybody's kind of looking at San Francisco going, I don't want to go there. So I think that's one of the challenges they're going to have. Um, Las Vegas is a little bit easier. You can get to. There's a lot of hotel rooms. They're a lot more inexpensive. But, you know, it's one of those where you got to pick one of the two maybe. But I, I think if J.P. Morgan is moving out of San Francisco, they get a lot more people showing up. I love San Francisco, but not the way it's turned out lately. Great. So then we have Dana asks, what about Dreamforce September 2023? So this is interesting. I know Salesforce has said they want to get into the world of um, healthcare data, um, either at the level of maybe hospital CRM, I'm sorry, hospital EMR, or at the level maybe of pharma CRM, uh, where Viva is dominant in pharma CRM right now. Uh, uh, Dana, but other than that, I'm not familiar. So I associate Dreamforce, that's the Salesforce's annual conference. It's user group conference where Salesforce has outstanding software for enterprise CRM and marketing automation and customer service automation. But I don't think that they um, have have made the splash in healthcare they may have once wanted to. And I can't think of what they're they're doing in healthcare. So I wouldn't necessarily and this audience is about the young company leader and their travel time budget and dollar budget and conference budget and that sort of thing. And so, uh, I, and so I, I think I don't recommend going to, to Dreamforce. Um, uh, Mark, any thoughts on that? Well, it, it's one of those things. They're in San Francisco, too. <laughs> so I kind of what's going on with San Francisco, bringing the people in. But, I, you know, Salesforce is trying to get into healthcare multiple times, CRM. There are very few healthcare organizations that even have a true CRM product. Uh, we probably need more of that, but there's not been a requirement for it. There's not been a real need for it. So Salesforce has been trying for multiple years to get into healthcare. They've got a little bit in there, but it's more on the payer side, the, you know, the, the pharma side, not on the provider side yet. So, you know, it's if you're on the provider side, I'd probably skip this conference. Not because it's in San Francisco, but you know, that combination, I, don't, I would not go to that one. The, the Dreamforce conference is so big. Um, now, who knows what it's like after COVID, but it's so big that I think cruise ships sail into San Francisco Harbor and dock in order to be extra hotel rooms. for. <laughs> yes, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Um, and uh, uh, also, uh, my view is that in, in the hospital context, um, the EMR is the CRM, so effectively Cerner the CRM, yes. Epic's the CRM, uh, and if and you know and Salesforce should should basically buy Epic uh, if it wants to get be, get into CRM for for hospitals. Um, so yeah, yeah, we, Oracle already bought Cerner, so you know, that, that there's a possibility, but you know I don't think Judy Faulkner's ever going to sell Epic, so it's going to be a challenge. But Meditech's still sitting out there. So we also have uh, Catherine asking national collaboration in aging 2023. So I'm not sure what this conference is, um, but it could be the the AARP's Age Tech Collaborative Small Conference in September in DC. And I, I like that a lot. I'm going to go to that. I think an, an age, a young age tech company would be well advised to go to that, register with the AARP, go to that, 
show off their product at that. Uh, I think there will be there's a growing community of age tech investors, uh, specialized venture funds. I think several of them will be going to that as well. Get meetings, present your product, get meetings with those investors. So, uh, uh, Catherine, I, I think that let me know if there's a, another age tech conference um, that you're thinking of. And the, the, the question there again, is there any buyers for that? I mean, we know that everybody's getting older. We have a lot more costs we have to do for them. Uh, there's not an incentive yet to cut cost, you know, for anybody. You know, we get paid based on sick people. Uh, if you're healthy, we don't get any money. That's part of the problem. Until we move from a, you know, fee-for-service to a value-based or outcomes-based reimbursement, there's not a lot of financial incentive to buy new technologies for elderly people. Uh, we make money off of sick people today. That's got we got. That's what we got to work on. We got to get the government and everybody else moving from fee for service to value based reimbursement. Let's start paying for health instead of paying for sickness. And a, a lot of um, sort of age tech uh, products are actually um, they're sort of cons- in, well, so they, they have different pathways yeah. of sales, but one of them is consumer. And it, it sort of takes advantage of the fact that uh, the elderly are the wealthiest demographic in the country and has special needs. Um, and uh, so, Mark, any other conferences coming up in the fall that you want to call out? Um, uh, and, any of them really kind of stand out? Yeah, I don't think anything really stands out. There are all these small conferences out there. But again, if you're going to invest and spend money going to a conference, you know, I'd really, really read, find out who the attendees are. What is the process? And I've gone to a lot of conferences. Oh, we got thousands of people. And I go, there's, there's 40 people in the room. Okay. That's not very good. Because again, don't attend it unless you know it's going to be valuable to you. And if you've got a product you're looking at selling, make sure there's a buyer for that product. And make sure somebody wants to buy your product. There's a lot of good ideas out there. The problem is a lot of the good ideas no one wants to buy right now. It's not a priority. So next, personal notices. So my personal notices. Um, so uh, the next show, Digital Health Investor Talk, is on Wednesday, July 26th at 4 p.m. with Jonathan Olson. Uh, the topic is solving the commercialization riddle, trade-offs and steps needed for commercialization and how to create a winning plan. Uh, and also my next Digital Health Drinks night is in Boston. It's tomorrow, Thursday, July 13th, between 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Liberty Hotel Bar. Uh, so I'll be there. Uh, and the theme for the drinks night is uh, what can generative AI do for healthcare? And we have Austin Walters, a VC focused on generative AI and healthcare, talking about how he categorizes young companies and chooses to invest in young companies that have a generative AI angle. Um, uh, and so you guys can, you, you can, if you're if my audience is in Boston, you can register for that at stephenmordell.eventbrite.com. You'll see upcoming events. Um, so, Mark, any personal notices from you? Yeah, I've got a few of them. So I'm spending a lot of time uh, writing articles about the EHR audit trails and malpractice cases. Uh, not, not dealing with telehealth, but basically there's a lot more malpractice cases out there that we need to have expertise on what is the audit trail, what's the ER, the EHR really show. I talked to a lot of lawyers about this, and they're very confused on what to provide, what information to ask for, and how to get it. So I'm, I'm writing a series of articles around EHR audit trails and malpractice. I'm also doing a number of sessions coming up, especially in, a, I think it's the third week of September, no, most, no, it was the last week of September, on AI in revenue cycle management at the HBMA meeting in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
basically, how can we use AI to improve the overall operations of revenue cycle, collections, and processing of the claims, adjudicate the claims faster, reduce down the number of denials. You know, you got to remember, most practice and hospitals struggle to get the insurance companies to pay the bill. Remember that insurance companies make money by not paying the bill. They deny on average 20% of all the claims. They just deny it. They always try to delay payment as much as they can. We need to come up with better ways of tracking all that. And now AI's got some new tools. There's some new software companies out there. they got some really good AI tools for helping improve the operations of RCM while cutting costs, while improving overall reimbursement. And the final one I'll say, which is kind of a funny one, um, I'm going to be in Las Vegas during the second week of December. I go there every year for the Pro Rodeo Finals. That sounds kind of weird, but I'm always there all week long for the Pro Rodeo Finals because I'm very active in the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo where we raise about $30 million a year for scholarships. So it's nothing to do with health care, but I'm there. If anybody happens to be in Las Vegas, the Pro Rodeo Finals, I'll be happy to meet with you while I'm there. That's kind of off the cuff, I think. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you. Um, so now we move on to our main topic, which is selling into the provider budget. Um, what's going on with healthcare providers? What does their budget look like? What are their spending preferences? That sort of thing. So why don't I just open this up very generally? You know, what is going on with um, with hospitals, their their finances in general, their IT spend, capital, and and uh, you know, and and other otherwise. Um, and, you know, li- from the outside listening, it sounds like there's a lot of pain at hospitals and has been for the last few years. But, you know, what 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 is going on and what are some of the biggest pain points that, that they have? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of different pain points. As we mentioned earlier, COVID really hurt a lot of the hospitals operating budgets. Uh, you know, the government did subsidize some of the, ho- the hospitals for some of the money. But again, we were closing down all our physician offices, all our amatory surgeries, regular inpatient surgeries got cut back. So we lost a lot of money during that time. Plus, we spent a lot of money on replacing our hospital-wide systems from 2009 to 2019 with the government handing out, you know, $52 billion to go out and buy EHRs. When we bought our EHR, we also replaced our lab, radiology, pharmacy, you know, surgical systems, replaced our systems with a lot of expenditures and a lot of operating budgets and capital budgets. Today, we need more technology, but overall capital budgets for HIT is only expected to increase 1%. And for 40% of the hospitals, annual capital budgets are going to be down over 30% from pre-COVID periods. Now, I've seen a lot of articles saying, oh, no, it's going to be going up by 19% a year healthcare spending, not in the hospital settings. You know, hospitals don't have the money to spend. They don't have a big capital budget. They're going to spend money on medical devices, hiring new doctors, other kind of things like that, but not on IT unless you have a product and a service that's going to improve operations quickly. I don't want to spend a million dollars, and in two or three years, I may save two million. I don't have time for that. So anything around enhancing the RCM productivity, primary and collections and denials, one of our biggest problems has been patient balances. You know, when patients went from a $500 deductible to $5,000 deductible, we have to collect a larger percentage of our money from the patient. And healthcare organizations are terrible at collecting money from the patient. We're just not, we don't know how to do it. We're not very good at that. So anything you can do around that, especially on AI tools around RCM to improve overall key performance indicators. But I do like the option of looking at care coordination. 
how do I coordinate a care between multiple facilities? Patient goes to a doctor's office, may go to an ambulatory surgical center, goes to a hospital, then gets discharged from the hospital, goes to a rehab center or a long-term care or a nursing home. We don't coordinate the data between us. We need to find better ways of integrating the data and care coordination so we don't run the same test four or five times. There's a lot of really good tools for that. As I mentioned earlier, I think the big push is going to be reducing surgical complications so we can improve overall outcomes, reduce complication costs. A lot of things we can do around that. But again, you got to have a product that shows quantified benefits. I'm not even going to look at it. And I tell you, the vendors are not good at qualifying the benefits. I've done probably 500 studies on quantifying benefits when I worked as a corporate CIO because the board's not going to spend the money unless I can prove financial benefit. You can do it. But I tell you, the vendors just need a lot of help in doing it correctly today. That, that's great. And that, so that is, um, you know, one of the, uh, so um, I guess I would call it, you know, more, more conservative uh, or more dire uh, predictions I've seen about, um, you know, healthcare IT spend, you know, barely going up. Um, so, yeah, uh, the next year, and I've read, I've read the articles where they're saying it's going to you know, go up 19 percent. I'm like, I don't know a hospital that's going to spend 19 percent more money on technology this year. Yeah, we're going to spend more money on our EHR because every year there's a cost increase, but not capital. Operating costs can increase, but the capital costs, we just don't have the capital money set aside for new technologies because the EHR vendors are saying we've got everything we need. You don't need anything else. Just spend money on Epic and Cerner, which is now Oracle, you know, Meditech. It's hard to get us to buy best-of-breed add-on products unless it's offered by the Oracle, Cerner, or the Epics, or Meditech, or now Harris Healthcare that owns the um, Allscripts product. So, you know, I see these predictions that it's going to engross. I just have no idea because I don't know one hospital out there that's going to spend that kind of money. And most hospitals I talk to, they have a zero capital budget for IT, or it's very small. Operating budgets, we'll just spend some more money, but I'm not going to do it on capital. So you brought up an interesting trend we've been watching for a while. So it, it, it used to be the case that the market was less mature. There were fewer integrated suites of products out there. Uh, and uh, many hospitals were known for doing best of breed. Uh, and no hospital would just go with a single vendor for most for most solutions. And and now for at least five years, we've seen a, a creeping move toward the enterprise buy. So the enterprise buy is good for the majors like uh, Oracle Cerner or Epic, um, but bad for um, the innovators who are trying to come in and, and sell to hospitals. So what is happening with the enterprise buy? Is that, is that accelerating um, or, uh, or is that, or, you know, is that, is that flat or what, what's, what's happening with, with, uh, Buyers like CIOs shifting toward an enterprise buy. So everybody bought an enterprise system in the last, you know, really from 2009 through 18. They already bought a system. Trying to replace those systems is very expensive because it's very hard to convert the data. All of your clinical data from Epic, trying to convert it to Cerner, very hard, almost impossible to do. And the only times I'm seeing any type of, you know, uh, consolidation going on is when two hot hospitals merge with the 10 hospitals and they go with one vendor. So there's, there's not a new, there's no green market out there. Everybody already has a system. They're not going to replace it because of the cost. There's no, you know, when the government was handing out $52 billion to hospitals to buy these systems, we don't bought systems. We already bought the enterprise wide system. 
but there is still value for the add-on best-of-breed products that are integrated with the Oracle, Cerner, Epics, and Meditex. Really, those three vendors have 90% of the market today on the enterprise-wide. Everybody's buying, you know, has either bought or buying enterprise-wide systems. And, and you know, you got companies like Epic that got, I think it was 98% of all new beds went to Epic, mostly because of mergers and acquisitions. You know, a small five-bed hospital joins the 20-bed hospital. I mean, a 20-hospital chain, they're on Epic. Epic wins most of the deals. Although Cerner, Oracle slash Cerner, has won a number of deals over the last couple of years, but they're smaller hospitals. They've lost the, the most number of beds, but they've gotten some good smaller hospital contracts. So I lose a five-hospital chain that has 5,000 beds, and I gain three hospitals at 150 beds. So there's still some sales out there. But if you've got a really good add-on product, you got to work it through Epic or, or Oracle Cerner or Meditech because, again, I'm not going to buy it unless you fully integrate with those products because Epic and Cerner and Meditech are the base of all information. That's our registration. That's our billing system. That's our EHR system. Anything that you're going to provide as a better product out there has to get the information out of those products. And as a doctor, I'm not going to leave my product to go look in your product. I want to be in my product, which would be, let's call it Epic. Find a way of integrating with Epic. So a company called Innovasive has done that. They've done a very good job of interfacing with the Epics and the Cerners and the Meditechs. And, and that makes it a lot better because the doctors never leave the, the Cerner product or the Epic product, but they get to see all the benefits of the, what the Innovasive company does. That's how you have to thrive in this market. Interface, integrate with the core um, enterprise-wide vendors today. So they – the biggest reform in healthcare of our lifetimes was Obamacare and the move, which was pushing the move from fee for service, which is the way it's been since World War II and, and, and beforehand, to fee for value in the future. Um, and many people are disappointed because they're claiming that this shift to fee for value has been slower than expected. Um, and with fee for service, hospitals tend to want to buy products that optimize for fee for service. And in general, they don't like technology, because what they want to do is hire more expensive, highly billable people and then throw them business where they can bill at the top of their billing license. And they don't want to substitute Correct. technology for labor because they want people who can bill at high rates. But when you move to fee for value there, suddenly providers want to get rid of expensive people and replace them with automation and technology. And that's great for tech vendors. Uh, so tech vendors want to see it move rapidly to fee for value. And yet when you then bring your solution, that's an automation solution, let's say, uh, to a provider, uh, they're often not interested. They're still optimizing for fee-for-service in some way. Um, and so how is how do you track how this is going? I, I, the conventional wisdom, I think, is that overall spend is shifted less than 10% toward true fee-for-value. It often still behaves like fee-for-service. That's a disappointment more than 10 years after Obamacare. But I recently heard some people argue that it has that it has moved much more rapidly and that effectively Medicare Advantage is like fee for value. Uh, and that's become a bigger and bigger part of spend. So how do you think about this in hospitals? And, you know, uh, uh, how does a, a, a and so should, you know, can tech vendors uh, pitch as fee for value and expect hospitals to to, you know, to aggressively buy it? Uh, or will hospitals be thinking in a fee for service mindset? Hospitals are still in a fee-for-service mindset because that's how we get reimbursed. In 2018, Medicare came out and said, we're going to move 55% of all reimbursement 
to some kind of value-based, you know, outcomes-based reimbursement model. 2018. Now we're in 2023. Overall average is 9%. So we're not quite there yet. Now, again, the insurance companies have all said they're going to move 55% of all reimbursement to value-based. It hasn't happened. One of the challenges under this value-based reimbursement, patients are assigned, people with chronic diseases primarily, which represents about 30 to 40% of the population as it grows, are going to be assigned to one health care system to receive all their health care. If you like your doctor, you don't get to keep them. If you like your hospital, you don't get to keep it. You're going to be assigned to one health care system. And under Obamacare, the whole thing was if you like your doctor, you can keep them. If you like your hospital, you can keep it. That goes away under value-based reimbursement because you got to give the value to the who has the most incentive to improve that person's health. It's going to be a health care system that can provide the hospital, the physician, the emergency room, long-term care, rehab, behavioral health care, all in one. It's not going to go to your local independent doctor or your 10-bed rural hospital today. And so that's one of the reasons it hasn't moved that fast. The other reason is for CMS, which really funds Medicare and Medicaid, to move the money from fixed, fixed, you know, you know, fixed reimbursement to value-based reimbursement, there has to be a budgetary change. They have to actually readjust the money and put it into a different budget. Since the government keeps doing these continuing resolutions, they're not really changing the budget. They're really approving the budget. CMS cannot even move the money to start paying for that until Congress agrees to a full operating budget. When is that going to occur? We haven't had it since 2000, at least 2018 or before that. Continuing resolutions hold this up. And the insurance companies are not going to go with it yet until, you know, the government does it first. Now, Medicare Advantage is kind of like that, but Medicare Advantage is run by the payers. So Medicare Advantage, like you got, you know, United, Aetna, Cigna, the Blues, all have Medicare Advantage plans where they're coming up with ways of reducing the payer's cost, not necessarily improving the outcomes or improving overall, you know, value, quality value, but how can I cut my costs down? And the way they typically do it, because I have a lot of doctors are now part of these value-based programs, they're telling doctors not to order any more tests. Don't order lab tests. Don't order x-rays. You know, use your brain because 80% 80% of all lab results come back normal. Then why are you ordering them? 75% of all x-rays come back normal. Then why do you order them? You know, And then don't order an MRI or something else. So what value-based reimbursement I think is very valuable. We need to move towards that. But Medicare Advantages are saving money. They're providing better benefits to the consumer. But it's all built around lowering costs for the payer, not necessarily improving all overall health care. But I like I'm on a Medicare Advantage plan. I like it as a consumer, but I also don't get any tests done. So, so I've I've been asked about sort of hot categories um, for the hospital CIO where they are spending their budget, um, and the first one is there's, there's a perception at least that hospitals are spending more on staffing and on staffing IT. So is that is that a hot category for for hospital for hospital CIOs to and why why is that and where is that going in the next year or two? Yeah, I think staffing is always a problem in the healthcare organizations. Again, we don't pay a very high salary for somebody who may be really strong in a certain you know technology. Other organizations, you know, finance organizations, oil and gas, you know, banking, pay a lot more money. They're getting the best people. Uh, you know, we need to you know triple our pay in healthcare. 
right? To be able just to compete against the other industries, which we can't afford to do. So we like taking people right out of school, trying to teach them how to use Epic or how to use the Oracle, you know, Cerner product. We want people to understand that one product, the operations of a software, not the technical expertise you have out there. We don't have that many people that are really strong in the technology side. We have a lot of people understand how to operate Epic, how to operate a HR system or a physician office system. So, yeah. IT staffing is a challenge, but we don't pay enough to really bring them in. That's part of the problem. That's one of the issues that's out there. And by the way, for our audience, by the way, now's a great time to jump in. If you have questions for a hospital CIO or for me, feel free to jump in, type them in the chat, that sort of thing. So I actually, I meant the question slightly differently, but that was a great answer about the staffing needs of the hospital IT department. Um, But I meant that there's actually, there's staffing of doctors and nurses at hospitals um, and then there's also uh, IT vendors who have staffing, who, uh, IT vendors who have staffing products, like a matching, like yes. a matching product uh, for traveling nurses or something like that. Um, and so, you, you know, do you see? And again, uh, do you see how- we have so many, yeah, we have so many staffing products in the hospital today that tell me exactly how many nurses I need to have on to three north on Tuesday afternoon at three p.m. We have tools for that, uh, you know. Traveling nurses, we don't use that many of them. And usually the traveling nursing um, software vendor or company will provide those kind of staffing for them. We need better staffing, but it's not been a priority for people to buy that stuff. I think it's more on the AI, remote patient monitoring. As I mentioned, patient pay. How do we get patients to pay better? Anything dealing with revenue cycle, we got to bring more money in. I can't spend money on technology if I'm not bringing money in. Remember, the average hospital only gets paid about 28% of the charges they charge. I charge $1,000, I'm going to get paid 280 and I really got to work for that. It may take an average of 120 days to get paid. So anything dealing with improving reimbursement through the patient or through the insurance companies or quicker reimbursement is a higher priority than anything else right now. I need money coming in the door. So the, the next hot category is AI or generative AI. And so here, um, and so uh, if I look at a previous generation of AI, so in a previous generation of AI, it was computer vision AI, totally different than modern generative AI. And computer vision AI has had a huge positive impact on the practice of pathology and radiology, where it allows, you know, just, I love the example of a, um, a pathologist may look at five slides and focus on 100 cells per slide and then make a diagnosis. Uh, and a, a computer vision AI may look at a thousand cells per slide and look at 60 slides uh, and then make a better diagnosis. Um, and so why wouldn't you? And, and, and it's also faster as well why, and, and, and it doesn't get tired. Um, and so why wouldn't you shift to a product like that? So, but that, that's an earlier generation. Now we're seeing this generative AI based on large language models like ChatGPT and the competitors to it, like Google Bard, and people are looking for good use cases. Um, and I was in an online discussion recently where a number of people advocated for better risk coding and billing, uh, use of I'm not sure how exactly, but use of generative AI, perhaps to read the medical record, to to note take the medical record live during an exam, and then to read the medical record better, and then to do risk coding and billing better. And you mentioned possibly also collections better with generative AI. 
Um, and so what yep. do you think are the use cases? And do you think this is real? Do you think that, you know, hospital CIOs might bite uh, for this kind of stuff in the next two years to spend on generative AI products in this area or other use cases that we haven't thought of yet? As I mentioned earlier, one of the good use cases for AI is in surgical complications. You know, basically being able to read everything about the patient ahead of time, uh, understanding their risk stratification scores, understanding all the, you know, comorbidity type things, and then tracking what we think might be a risk for a complication after the fact, and then having a plan for that risk up front. We do it for septus today. Septus is one of the largest killers in hospitals. You come in, you get septus. We now have the tools that actually track potential septus before it's even noticed. That's an AI tool that's very valuable. Every hospital has to have that. I think the surgical complications is another one that's going to be very valuable. But as far as using a computer system to replace the doctor's thinking, that's not. That's going to be a long time before we work to that, or doing the coding for it. It may improve, but we don't get paid based on coding anymore. I mean, physician offices get paid on how much time they spend with it. Uh, in the in the um, medical side of the service in the hospitals, we get paid based on a diagnostic code. But, you know, AI is not really going to improve that that much. It'll be a DRG code. You may get a little bit, but, again, it's got to be proven. Show me that it's going to provide me a, a 100% financial benefit over and above my cost. Then I may look at it. But again, if you've got a 500 hospitals using it and they're getting the benefit, we're going to look. But we're very conservative. We've heard all these promises on this technology is going to benefit. We have not seen the benefits. Our operating costs have gone up, even with all this new technology. Staffing costs have gone up. Supply costs have gone up. We're not cutting costs anywhere. Healthcare costs are exceeding every other category of our increases. How has this health technology improved anything? It's basically provided a lot of money to vendors. And healthcare costs are still going up at triple, you know, the inflation rate. So, you know, these this technology is not really benefiting anybody yet. And remember, healthcare, United States healthcare, we're like 18th on the overall world healthcare. You know, uh, Costa Rica's got better healthcare than we do when it comes to health. We have the best medical system in the world, but we don't have the best health system because we don't pay for health. We pay for medical issues. That's great. And we have a question from Jordan who asks in the chat, um, who are the decision makers who are open to exploring better solutions for collecting payments? So would that be the C hospital CFO? Um, yes, it, it's basically the CFO, internal audit people. Uh, you know, yes, you always have the, uh, the director of, you know, patient accounting, which is the billing but, you know, they are not the decision makers. They're people that are involved in using the product, but they're not the decision makers. So it's really it's the CFO. But a lot of times I have found, and you know, I hate to say this, but your best avenue is talking. find the board member who is interested in finding ways of saving the hospital from going bankrupt. Board members talk to the CFO and say, you got to fix this problem. Here's a solution. The CFOs will listen to a board member a lot more than they'll listen to a salesperson telling you this is great for you. Find who the board members are. And I know the board's going to hate me saying this, but I found it very effective working with boards. If you get a board member who believes that we need to improve operations, they'll push the button and they'll get things moving a lot better than cold calling on CFOs. The board makes the priorities. That's probably the biggest issue. So uh, Morgan has a question. How do small startups get started with developing evidence, um, evidence that a solution, for example, 
surgical complications AI actually works. It seems like a zero to one cold start problem. Uh, so, you, so if you're a small startup, you don't have a lot of resources, but somehow you have to get evidence that your product works in order to get more resources. Uh, so that, that's you know, chicken and egg. Yeah, I've done this probably 50 times. Basically, it goes back to getting yourself a uh, expert like board, if you want to call it, you know, expert people on your you know, advisory board, create an advisory board with clinical people, operations people, you know, people that have done this. You know, I spent $9.2 billion on technology. I know what it takes to sell. But get some really good nursing people, physician, leadership who really understand it. Surgery, get a hold of surgeons, get a hold of emergency room doctors. You know, you get a hold of a few nurses in there, things like that. But get somebody who really understands what to take to close the deal. And those are the CIO type people who really understand the value and know how to sell it to people. I, you know, like I said, I go into a, a meeting and I've got a twenty million dollar budget. By the time I leave the board meeting, I got a fifty-five million dollar budget. I know how to explain to the the board what the value is, and you don't do it by talking about technology. I talk about building a house. You got to have a foundation. You got to have a roof over it. You got to have really good, you know, secure doors as security. We don't want anybody breaking in. You got to have really good fiber optics going through. Everything works well. You sell it on what people don't understand. What people understand. Don't sell the technology because we don't understand it. Sell it on a story. Talk about a hospital had a problem. We identified the problem. We came up with the solution. We built the fix for it. And here's the financial benefits. I've probably written 500 of those case studies. It can be done, but you got to get the right advisory board. You know, again, you're not hiring people. You're basically just getting somebody on the advisory board that provides you know, insight to you. That's the way to really get these products off the ground. So any other um, both pain points in the hospital and product categories that are going to get attention and spending in the next two years, uh, you know, from those pain points? We talked about you know, staffing. We talked about surgical care. We talked yeah. about some things like that. I think one of the other areas, which is not necessarily right now, but it's pretty close, remote patient monitoring tied with telehealth. In other words, I want to find ways of having a like a nursing, uh, home health care nurses go out to the field and provide a complete clinical visit because they're there with remote patient monitoring devices and the telehealth to talk to a doctor using care coordination, bringing that all together. Again, the reimbursement's not quite there yet. But as we move to value-based reimbursement, it takes a year worth of data collection to figure out where you stand. We've got to convince hospitals to spend the money today to start looking at value, figuring out who your best doctors are and what the best way of reducing costs and improving outcomes. We don't get paid for it today, but we're getting paid for it a little bit. But there's really good grant money for that to get it going. As an early startup vendor, I'd be working with hospitals to go after grant money to study these kind of things. I have reduced diabetic costs by 28% for 5,000 high-risk diabetic patients just by having a care coordination product tied with the physician office system and remote patient monitoring, you know, the, the, the glucose monitoring devices that are out there, and tracking the patients. We've cut ER visits by 48%. That drives financial benefit, and the healthcare plans are providing us financial incentives to keep working on that. Get the healthcare plan willing to pay for things. If I can prove I can lower overall cost, and we're actually getting more doctors' office visits through telehealth and these remote patient monitoring, the doctors are monitoring these patients, and we know when a patient's blood sugar goes from 300 to 500 in five minutes, and we got somebody already talking to the patient. 
That's healthcare. Don't wait for them to show up in the emergency room or the hospital. Take care of it up front. Create products like that. There will be a need for that in the next year or two. But you can sell it today. And I've been really good at helping hospitals understand you got to start today on these kind of products. You can't wait for the, the value-based contract to come out because you don't know what your cost is. Think about that. What other industry has no idea what their cost is to take care of a diabetic patient? We have no idea. Or a patient that has cancer, a patient that has, you know, cardiology issues. We don't know what it costs to take care of an office visit. We know what we get paid, but that's not our cost. We don't know what our costs are. We do not have cost accounting. What other industry does not have a cost accounting system? So that, this reminds me of a story from, from the industry, which was just, you know, that uh, uh, I think a, a father had a young daughter, um, and he was uh, in the office of hospital CIO, um, and he bought her a Barbie doll, and it was Barbie as a doctor. Um, and so it came with a clinic, uh, and then there was a sign to put outside the clinic and the sign said something like, um, you know, cast for broken bone, $40, um, or stitches, $25, something like that or whatever. And he, he held it up at a conference and said, Nat said, you know, how does Barbie know what this costs? <laughs> we don't know what this costs. Yeah. No one in health, no healthcare know, yeah. knows what these things cost. How, how can, how can, you know, how does Barbie know? Um, so, uh, well, the other thing that ties into that is the new law, the, the no surprise act. We're supposed to be able to tell a patient what it's going to cost them to come into the emergency room. That's impossible. You're coming in because you stub your toe or because you had a massive stroke. We don't know what the cost is going to be, but they want us, you know, the new law is trying to get us to say, this is what the cost is. What's the cost for a simple, Three view X-ray of your left leg. Okay, we can kind of we can tell you what that cost is going to be. I don't know what the insurance companies are going to pay because they don't tell us what they're going to pay. Sometimes we have you know con- some kind of contracts, but it's so confusing. Cost in healthcare is unknown. You know, as a doctor, I don't know what I'm going to get paid most times. I don't know because the insurance companies may deny the claim. I'm not going to get paid anything. What's the patient have to pay? We have no idea. That is a big problem with the No Surprise Act because we can't enforce it. We can't even deliver it. Because we don't know what our costs are. And, you know, this No Surprise Act is supposed to tell the patient what their overall cost is going to be for a total knee replacement. Well, the prosthesis may cost 5000 or 50000 depending on which one the doctor orders. I have no control of that up front unless the doctor tells me this patient can use a, you know, a platinum one versus this one can use, a, you know, a, a plastic one. We don't know what our costs are going to be. So ha- having a, a federal government tell us we have a no surprise act, we got to tell patients what the cost is up front, is unimplementable right now. So for our audience, uh, you know, we probably have time for one more question from the audience, uh, and then let me circle back around on on uh, remote monitoring codes. So very interesting topic, very hot in some ways. So first of all, it was like a miracle that uh, you know five or so years ago we got these remote monitoring codes. Uh, and since then, a lot of young companies have tried to form up around the idea of building a business model around the remote monitoring codes. And yep. There's two ways that this that remote monitoring gets sort of engaged with. One is on a fee for service basis. Um, you the provider is spending up to provide a device to the patient, uh, and then it's going out of its way to monitor the data from that device, get the patient uh, you know um, adherent 
and look at the data and then they can charge they can charge 40 or 100 or 200 or 300 or or dollars a month perhaps for having patients in this kind of care they're seeing more data uh, maybe they start seeing negative episodes of the patient that indicates the patient is a more is in a more serious condition so then they can upcode the mm -hmm. risk of that patient charge more overall for the care of that patient with remote monitoring codes the other kind is patients that are more under fee for value capitation and they're looking to cut uh to cut visits to them, cut staff internally, and provision devices that to patients that automate so the patient can sort of self-care at home and they can see that data and have an overall much lower cost while having a relatively capitated reimbursement for the patient under fee for value. Um, is that is that how that's that's, paid, that's yeah. two different business models? Is, is that are you seeing one more than the other? Is that is that how it's playing out in the, in the marketplace? Yeah. I think it goes back to, you know, when I talk about, you know, telehealth, remote patient monitoring is extremely valuable. You can't have it. If you're going to have a value-based reimbursement, you've got to have both of those technologies in there. Under fee-for-service, you know, the doctor looks at it and goes, you have to spend at least 30 minutes per month looking at the data, and you're going to get paid $70. Like, it's not worth it. You know, if, now, if I can have a, a, a care coordination where I have a PA or a nurse practitioner or even a, an RN reviewing the data, it may be worth it to the doctors. But right now, financially, it's not worth it to them unless it's a value base or unless the doctor really wants, you know, he's involved in clinical trials where he's getting paid for the overall quality or, you know, by, you know, a diabetic patient is a perfect example, you know, how we can control the insulin levels a lot better, reduce the insulin cost. But again, without that, again, the financial value is just not there for the doctors. It takes too much time based on the reimbursement. I'd rather see, have the patient come into the office. Once a month, and I get paid, you know, I'll bill $150, get paid $100 because um, that's part of my routine, you know, system versus, okay, I can't go see a patient right now because I'm doing these telehealth reviews, and I've got 50 patients being telehealth reviews, which is taking 30 hours a week, and ain't making enough money. So we got to find a better way of doing it, but value-based reimbursement kind of model, remote patient monitoring and telehealth is a necessity for anybody to you know thrive and value-based reimbursement. That's great. Well, so I'm not I'm not seeing any more questions from the audience. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll wind it up. Uh, any any final thoughts on the state of hospitals and the budget of the hospital CIO for for digital health tech companies? Think about trying to move as much as you can to an operating budgets. Anything over twenty five thousand dollars requires as far as the capital perks, it requires it to go through the board approval. That'll take about 18 months. If you could create something where it's just a operating cost, uh, you know, it's over, you know, over 25,000, but make it an operating cost. Those can get approved within 30 days. If there's a real value, stay away from, you got to pay 25,000 for a capital. Don't make it capital contracts, make it an operating budget type of contract, a SAS model you know, remotely hosted, those kind of things. I got a question. Though. Will any of the people have access to my email or my phone number to call me if they have any questions? Well, by all means, uh, you can go go ahead and provide uh, you know that, that information. So my email is mra at acgroup.org. I'm an org. And my cell phone number is 281-413-5572. And I'll add my, my final comment. Back in 1985, one of my doctors I was walking, working with wanted me to invest in his son's startup company. 
Uh, he thought he was going to have a really good product out there. He was going to drop out of UT medical school, uh, UT school. And you probably already know now who that might be. That was Michael Dell. And I, I decided I was not willing to invest in Michael Dell's startup company because who can compete against IBM and HP and those other companies? Well, Michael figured that out and now is a billionaire. And as I always say when I'm giving speeches, instead of flying back on a commercial flight, standing in line for hours, I could be flying back my private jet. So look outside of the box. There's obviously opportunities out there. Don't just turn something down because it doesn't make sense. Really research it, which I did not do, and I should have. And so that's the, it for me. The sort of things that you work with people on is, uh, you know, investors call you to do KOL calls for due diligence, that sort of thing. Uh, yes. And also, so, so I have, I, I do, a, I brought, I probably do. Uh, probably 50 investor calls a month where they just want to, it's a one hour call or a half hour call, just asking me opinions on certain things. Uh, I've also, a couple of the investors have hired me to actually do due diligence on a company to find out if it's really worth it or not. I'd say 60% of the time I convince them it's not worth it. So they save a lot of money that way. But I also work with a lot of startup companies um, because again, buying $9.2 billion over my career, I know what it takes to sell. And, and I work with so many CIOs. I know what they're looking for. I'm involved in all the committees. I can be very good at helping organizations better position themselves. And remember, I know the competition pretty pretty well today. I know what's going on out there. So I'm pretty good at helping organizations, especially startups, figure that out. And I've got about 15 startups now that are doing quite well in this industry. One was on the SEPTIS testing. Uh, he's doing, there's a lot of really good companies out there now. Innovator was one of mine. They're doing multi-million, you know, I think they're $100, $200 million now. So there's a lot of companies I give good insight to. And especially if you're going to go to a conference, make sure you got the right message out there because otherwise you're wasting time and money. Great. Well, thank, thank you, uh, Mark, for coming on the show. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. Our thanks to our guest, Mark Anderson. Mark is the CEO of AC Group and specializes in the evaluation, selection, and ranking of vendors in the entire healthcare marketplace. Uh, 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 And he's helped numerous startup companies better position their products and services. Our next show is two weeks from now on Wednesday, July 26th from 4 to 5.30. The topic is Solving the Commercialization Riddle with Jonathan Olson. And for our Boston audience, I hope to see you tomorrow night, Thursday, between 5.30 and 8.30 at the bar at the Liberty Hotel um, for our drinks night on the theme of what generative AI can do for healthcare. Um, Thanks very much, uh, and I'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. And bye, Mark.